0: Hello and welcome to the famous CFC podcast, the very first in fact. My name's Gary Barone and I'm joined by my great mate, the Blues' very own Wikipedia, club historian Rick Glanville. Hi, Rick. Hello, mate. Or should I say, Sav? Yeah, well, we come to why Rick calls me (laughs) Sav some other time. Uh, It isn't vulgar, by the way. In each edition of the famous CFC, we'll explore a different story of the Blues through time, explode a myth or two, and delve into the rich and rather marvellous heritage of the only (laughs) London club with Champions League winners' medals, as well as the small small matter, and seriously, it really is a small matter, of the 1918 Victory Cup.
1: It can't take a, that away from us, Gary.
0: It can't take anything away from us, that's the absolute <laughs> truth. Now, this pod nearly had the strap line How Chelsea Changed the World of Football, and today's topic fits that like a crystal study Michael Jackson glove. It's also topical because we're talking new owners
1: and your impact. Now, Rick, what headline figures are we talking about here? Well, we've got our fourth set of owners, Gary, um, since 1905 when we were founded, and our third different nationality. So briefly, as an overview, we had the Mears family and their associates from 1905 up to 1982. And their sort of initial outlay uh, for that first board was £5,000 in 1905, which is about half a million quid in today's money. Well, depreciating all the time as we speak. But, mm-hmm. uh, sure. <laughs> it, well, it, roughly, about three weeks ago, it was worth half a million. Then, So that was up to 1982. Then the Mears, well, it all went tits up with the Mears in 1982. And um, Ken Bates came in. He bought the club for one pound in uh, early April 1982. How much did he pay for it? One pound. One pound. And if you want to know, that look, look, some older football fans will say things like, oh, back in them days, you could uh, have a skimful of mild, you could uh, pay for entrance to the ground, have fish and chips on the way home, and you'd still have change out of a quid. Um, but inflation hasn't been that bad since 1982. So a pound then is worth about £3.30 or £3.40 nowadays. So that is the real anomaly because then you're talking um, in 2003, uh, we have Roman Abramovich coming in, and he, like in July 2003, he spends about 140 million.
0: The new icon is one Roman Arkadievich Abramovich. His plan to lead Chelsea to the promised land, however long it takes.
1: 20 years later or so, 19 in fact. We go from Russia with love to the USA and the Bowley Clear Lake Consortium, who've outlaid what is it, 4.25 billion? So you've gone five grand, one pound, 140 million, 4.25 billion. And in fact, those figures fairly reflect the state of the club at the time of the uh, takeover. And the sort of the state, yeah, the state that they were in and the issues they were facing.
0: So, what can we learn about these first days of the previous regimes? How they built a squad, what they got right and what they got wrong in their approach to take Chelsea forward? And how do they compare with the current owner strategy? Rick, can we start with a quick sounding on the new people? I believe you met several of them. How do you think they're doing?
1: Well, I'd like to know how you think they're doing, because I've met them and I I've sort of I've met a lot of them anyway. And I think they're doing a a brilliant job because when you think they've come from you know it's their introduction to to the world of football. Lots of them, they immediately I think introduced a fan centered approach in that you've got two um, died in the wall Chelsea fans on the board for a start yeah. off. Uh, yeah. So you've got Danny Finkelstein and you've got Barbara Sharon, both of whom, funnily enough, I've known for years uh, and. And I think that they meeting the other people I've been going around the stadium with them and talking about the history, then doing guided walks for them, so they understand the culture of the club. The heritage is just so important to them; they want to build a really successful commercially successful business, but it's not about just like uh chasing the the dollar and and doing things whatever makes the most money, it has to be built on a solid foundation of club culture and support. It's a very, very fan-focused approach that they're taking. I also think they've done well in terms of the their approach to uh, rebuilding a squad that was looking a little bit tired. I think, given the limitations, because you know the staff were leaving, there was a big changeover, it was all a bit of a shock. Um, so I, I think they've done really well. Yeah, but they've had to act in haste. Exactly. Isn't that always the
0: case? The previous owners must have messed up in some ways, and urgent attention is required. So <laughs> what were the first sure. tasks of the new board in 1905? And, and how, did, how did that launch
1: the club? Well, they're, actually, in <laughs> some ways, quite similar. Um, in other ways, completely different. If you think that Chelsea is rare in it, it didn't emerge from a church squad, a factory, uh, works team, there was no precedent. It was started from scratch. So think of all the issues that you had to deal with there. From building a stadium or finding a stadium, recruiting a squad, gaining admission to a professional league um drawing crowds uh you know things like the real basics like what's the name of the club what kit color do you wear what's your nickname gonna be so these were the i mean the real fundamental things that they had to be sure-footed on you know they had to sort of get it right they were millionaires lots of them two of them the mears brothers were contractors uh, there were two members of the Jane's family who were um, licensed victuallers, and you wonder, oh, and they ran, ran all the pubs in the locality. And you can, you don't need to you don't need to think much about what the benefits were of having a huge stadium attracting football fans once every fortnight uh, down there were. And it's clear what the those directors thought was great about it, but they had to make proper decisions and they were really lucky in that the man whose vision really uh, Chelsea Football Club was Fred Parker um, he was very sensible he was a proper sports administrator worked at the London Athletic Club was really sensible was a brilliant writer and a bit of a genius to be honest so um, he was the one that said we shouldn't be called Stamford Bridge FC which was Suggested that we should be called Chelsea, even though we're actually in Fulham. Um, he was the uh, the one who negotiated our admission to the Football League rather than the Southern League, so we went straight into Division Two from scratch. He was the one who convinced um, Gus Mears, the the Mears brother, who actually bought or borrowed the money to buy uh, the old Athletics ground at Stamford Bridge. Um, He was the one who convinced him that let's build a stadium that will be like a national stadium that we can hold FA Cups in and we can, you know, a a place to sort of be a real focal point of London football. Um, And so so you've got the name Chelsea. The kit colour came from the club president who was uh, Lord Cadogan, one of the biggest landowners in the area, and that is the connection really with what's happening with Todd Bowley and Bedad Igbali at the moment is that they are, they've spent a lot of time talking to football administrators, talking to other football clubs, establishing their credentials as as proper football owners. And if you imagine in 1905, starting from scratch, that's what Chelsea really had to do. So they went, uh, went around all the clubs and chatted them up and they, uh, they got um, cheerleaders for themselves and club vice presidents, including uh, one that I'll come to in a minute. But one of the best things I suppose they did, I was, so, I was so smart, is that they went to the Midlands clubs and said, look, if you elect us to the Football League Division 2, we'll give you 15 quid every time you come and play at our place. There's expenses, travel expenses. And to the London clubs and West Ham weren't happy about this, they wanted 15 quid, but they said to the London clubs, we'll give you a tenner when you come and play us. And um, and so that went down really well. And also they had, these, as I said, these cheerleaders, so local politicians were uh, vice presidents of the club, and the greatest living Englishman at the time, as he was known, a Charles Burgess Fryer, C.B. Fry, was a brilliant cricketer, brilliant footballer. He was a uh, vice president as well. So they really got up when I'm out of the Sorry, right, right. Really, just
0: to interrupt you.
1: Um, put, CB
0: Fry, just put that into context of how big a figure he was at the time.
1: Well, he was like, the, he was like, um, how can I put it? Like a sort of David Beckham, Kevin Peterson all rolled into one. So like a top. Uh, and I mean, not just a good footballer or a good cricketer, but one who transcended that and became a, a personality. So he was known uh, universally in England and celebrated as uh, as a, a, a kind of real magnificent Englishman, not just a, a great sportsman. And he was known all around the world. You know, his name was carried all around the world through newspapers because of his fantastic sporting prowess. And he's he was another. He was kind of a sports visionary as well. So he lots of his ideas. Uh, were carried around the world too and he you know why wouldn't you get someone like that involved in a brand new club that needs to establish itself well we all saw Roman splash the cash back in
0: 2003 and now Todd do so in record breaking fashion Chelsea are the top spenders
1: new ownership in Todd Burley new philosophy new players they've spent £176 million but the great news for Chelsea fans like going back to the Roman Abramovich eras they're not finished yet And when you look at the exciting players they're still being linked to in this summer window, it could be the summer transfer window of all summer transfer windows for Chelsea. So how did recruitment
0: happen 117
1: years ago? (laughs) There's another parallel, actually. And of course, in 1905, there was no director of football, like there wasn't in the summer, just gone. Um, Obviously, we've done, I think, one of the things that I'm really impressed about with Todd's uh, Behaviour is how he's identified and filled gaps in our development squad. Um, really, you know, bought some brilliant teenagers. And of course, back in 1905, you didn't have to do that because the youth, our youth scheme didn't exist until 1947. And of course, uh, nowadays we have a fully integrated women's team and we've made some fantastic signings for them this summer too, but that didn't exist in 1905. Um, But So how it worked back in 1905 was that Fred Parker, the man I mentioned before, the man whose sporting vision uh, and genius led to Chelsea being formed, it kept a diary. And he noted that after the foundation of the club on the 10th of March, um, he spent uh, five days just travelling around with a... Jackie Robertson, who who became Chelsea's first player manager, but he wasn't at the time. He was like on sabbatical from Glasgow Rangers. So he, he was the captain of, of of Rangers, and he was so for five days they set off wooing clubs, basically saying, "Have you got? Can we sign this player?" Um, you know, we, these are the kind of players we're going to have to try to impress them, telling them what the strategy was going to be, and why they should vote for them. Uh, you know, to get elected to Football League Division 2. But also, have you got any players that you want to get rid of? Um, These are the kind of players that we're looking for. And then they met the Football League president, John Bentley, and loads of all the the Northern clubs and went to a Manchester City Everton game and did some glad handing around there. And then Robertson, as I say, was still a Glasgow Rangers player. He had to bugger off. And Fred carried on all the canvassing and started signing all the players. So uh, they signed a... Ra- obviously, you have to buy a whole squad. It's not just filling the gaps in a, a first team. You've got to buy all the uh, you know, goalkeepers and defenders, midfielders, strikers, backup reserves, everything. So they did this in a whirlwind, basically, in a, a couple of months... And uh, they signed the first signing was a centre forward called Bob Mott Roberts for hundred quid. What could he get for hundred quid these days? It bought you a top striker back then. And then a um, James Robertson and inside forward for fifty quid. And then the next day they got Jimmy Windridge, who is actually one of our early legends, and he cost a an enormous hundred and ninety quid. And then a little bit later, of course, we got um, the giant, twenty-two stone, six foot two goalkeeper, Willie Falk. Ah, the great Falk. Why was
0: he, why was he so very important to their plans? Well, I think
1: um, largely because the way they were thinking was they want, they were desperate to make this huge stadium they were building, Stamford Bridge. They wanted it filled for every home game and in fact, they were successful uh, really, really soon. Chelsea have the Nine times the highest average home attendance uh, in the Football League, and eight of them were in about the first 20 years. So it was a hugely successful plan. And the, the way that part of the the contribution to that was that they bought box office stars. So people were, Willie Ford was this huge bloke who'd almost fill the goal just by standing there. As I say, six foot two, uh, 22 stone. And in that first season, uh, when Chelsea played away, they would hire young boys to walk around with A boards, advertising uh, boards, strapped round them, saying, "Come and see the twenty-two stone goalkeeper." Chelsea are playing at Stockport or whatever it was. Um, so they marketed him as a larger-than-life personality, and um, you can say it was slightly crass that they're they're talking about his weight, but it worked for them at that time, and in fact. Um, If you think that this summer we were linked with Ronaldo, (laughs) possibly for the same reasons. I mean, we now call it, you know, merchandising, um, marketing. And, of course, Ronaldo has a slightly different physique to um, (laughs) (laughs) Willie Falk. Um, But it was, you can see how progressive they were in terms of thinking we want to be a success and to be a success we have to... Put people on this pitch that are going to attract huge crowds. Well, I'm
0: not quite old enough to have seen Falk or Winbridge play, so it's difficult for me to assess whether
1: they bought well or not. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, there's a great story about Falk, by the way. That in I think uh, one of the first matches that we played, um, he was uh, he conceded he conceded a penalty, and the opposition striker put the ball down on the spot, looked up. And he saw this huge goalkeeper in front of him and kicked it straight To Fork saved it. He saved loads of penalties in that first season. And uh, it was right near the end of the game. So as the striker uh, traipsed off, he was berated by his manager. And he said, how the hell could you miss something, such, such an important penalty like that? He said, I put the ball down, looked up, and there was nowhere. To, there was nowhere in the goal, no space in the goal for me to shoot so that's a sign of how um huge and in many ways uh, willie fork was but it was really successful we finished third in our first season we were really close to getting promoted um but we didn't unfortunately it didn't work out um and we in terms of attendance we had a sixty seven thousand attendance which was a league record at the time in division two when man united who were vying for the title or vying for promotion with us and visited on uh, Easter. And um, we, in a few years' time, we were providing the all three or three of the five international forwards for the England national team. So they did build a really bloody good squad in those uh, early days. So they, I think they did really well. Hey guys, we
0: really hope you're enjoying this incredible new series. The first official episode there was episode zero you might have enjoyed that you might have got to listen to that one but i hope you're enjoying the first official episode of the famous cfc with rick glanville and gary barone so incredible i'm loving it but real quick we're gonna to jump to some ads and we'll be right back we're well, moving on to living memory well at least for you and i <laughs> Yeah. 1982 what was ken Bates' background and what sort of approach did he take when he took over
1: well Kane Bates was sort of a bit of a mystery. I don't know if you remember. I don't I'd never heard of him before, but he was um he was a director of of Wigan Athletic, uh, that um minor team up from up north that um we hardly ever played. Um, and he had to give that up when he became owner of Chelsea he had to give his shareholding up there. And I think first impressions, he was a bit fur coat, Rolls-Royce and a cunning wheeler-dealer, wasn't he? And um, and he knew the Mears personally, uh, um, knew the Mears family personally, but I think it was Martin Spencer at Chelsea, the uh, financial commercial bloke who mm. knew that it was an ailing club, Chelsea. I mean, we were 1.5 million in debt um, because of the uh, overspend on the East Stand development from 1972-73. And um, uh, so Martin Spencer called him in and uh, got him in. And I I want to just read something, actually, from his book, Ken Bates' book, Chelsea, My Year, which is a great book to read, actually. I agree. That's a a good one. So Chelsea, just to say to people how bad things were, um, that there was a... It was like... Okay, Martin Spencer saying to the board, "Right, we owe the FA or we owe the football league this much. We owe uh, the bank this much. I've got two checks here for those two. Which of them do you want me to tear up because we can't afford both? Um, So, like, unless there was a serious injection of cash, uh, or so it seemed, um, we'll come on to that. It was not clear that the club would still be going. Um, So Ken Bates wrote." at a further meeting this martin spencer indicated that total the total package would cost about 4 million including 1.5 debt to the bank apart from this kind of money being out of my league says bates it appeared too much to put into a hobby quote unquote so i wasn't particularly interested subsequently i proposed that i bought just the club the ground and debts sorry subsequently I proposed that I bought just the club the ground and debts staying with SB property now I'm sure you know what the problem was there Gary that, <laughs> <laughs> that we Stanford Bridge Properties was a separate company to Chelsea Football Club um so in his first steps really um he created a an issue uh, you know, I'm not saying it. Maybe he couldn't afford to to address the issue, but it came back to haunt us because developers bought that company SB Properties pretty soon. Well, it's a sexy bit of sexy bit of land, isn't it? A nice bit of real estate. <laughs> Absolutely. But can you remember what it was like when we went through ten years of developers threatening to uh, reduce the size of the ground or make it all housing and shops? And then we were going to do a ground share with Fulham or QPR or all, or both of them. Um, so that was, it was a not a sure-footed step in 1982 to sort of um, endanger. And I'm not saying, I'm not putting all the blame on Bates. I'm Martin Spencer and the, the Chelsea Board primarily because they still owned the, 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 the freehold in the SB properties. They were shareholders in SB properties and they sold, they flogged that off to developers i mean so th- but what i'm saying is to get back to the point there were big faltering steps uh in that uh, in th- in those early days that uh, ken Bates made and again without that w- without having the director of football back in the 80s a managers you know these were alpha males and john neal who was the manager that ken inherited um, a really steady, proper football man, and his assistant, Ian Neil. They were in charge of the squad, so they were the ones that got rid of the disgruntled players. And bearing in mind, we were in Division Two again, and we were really, I mean, we finished twelfth. But it was it was not going well, and there was no money in the club, and you know it looked like a down bit of a downward spiral. Um, and we were relying quite heavily on uh, our youth team that was producing. Okay, products, and uh, with the odd gem, and so um, what does uh, what does John Neal do? He goes out and the first signing of Ken Bates' regime was David Speedy, who anyone who followed Chelsea in the eighties knows formed a fantastic uh, partnership with uh, Kerry Dixon and Pat Nevin uh, a year later. Um, but at the time it was an unknown qual- uh, quantity from Darlington. And the other big signing was this 36-year-old journeyman, Brian Pop Robson. Do you re- do you remember Pop Robson? Well, I think it's more Grandpop by the time we saw him, wasn't he? Well it was a bit like hiring a steam train in the age of diesel, wasn't it? It's signing Pop Robson. But I think both of them scored on their debut. And um I he scored again though. Probably, <laughs> he did hardly played. I think he was supposed to be a coach, so I can see the sort of rationale of bringing him in. And he had been successful at, at other clubs, but I think we signed him from Carlisle. Yeah. So you know, Darlington and Carlisle were not, you know, you recruiting from them. It didn't really inspire confidence. Anyway, so how did all that turn out? Terrible. <laughs> Our worst, the worst finish in the history of Chelsea Football Club. We finished eighteenth. Uh, two away from the drop. And we'd finished, as I said, 12th the season before. You'll remember Clive Walker at Bolton scoring the winner. Um, loads one and one most, of the most
0: important goals in the history, Rick, whatever
1: anyone says. Couldn't agree more, Gary. And, you know, there were, I think there were about 12,000 people there, but uh, that was, what was it, uh, 40 years ago. And so I think the number has risen if I can believe everyone who's told me they were there, it's risen to about 50,000. But um, that was, as you say, one of the best ever uh, goals, most important goals a lifesaver. And then we got a diplomatic draw against Borough. They they avoided the drop as well. And from then on, this is where you have to credit Bates, because from next summer, far more ambitious, Eddie Nidzveski, Joe McLaughlin, Nigel Spackman, Kerry, Pat, and then a little bit later, uh, Mickey Thomas, and promoted. So from a really bad summer and uh, a a bad outcome, suddenly everything turned out much, much better. And Of course, he did win the Battle of the Bridge and eventually (laughs) built the stadium we know today.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm sure yeah. we come to the story of Chelsea Village in the future podcast. Yeah, but, but now looking briefly at um, at the Mears and Abramovich era, what sort of structure changes did they make
1: from the from the start? Well, the Mears obviously had to, you know, they, they inherited or they bought um, a an athletics ground that had like a pavilion and tennis courts and nothing else. Didn't have any banking for for a crowd, and they had massive ambitions. They wanted this to be a national stadium. They they wanted England to play there. They wanted FA Cup finals to be played at Stamford Bridge. And so they had enormous plans, uh, massive plans, for what the ground should should be like. And, in fact, they got Archibald Leach, the premier uh, architect for sports arenas and stadiums, and um, Archie Leach got the steel from north of the border. So a bit like Iron Brew, uh, the famous Scottish drink and its advertising campaign, Stamford Bridge was made in Scotland from girders. and um, But they only built one stand, which was called the main stand. People think it was called the east stand. It wasn't. It was called the main stand up until it was demolished in the early 70s, as we just sort of touched on. Um, and that was for seating. And the rest was... Built up spoil mud, basically, with terracing on it where you stood. So just to give an orientation, if you were those of those people that go to Stamford Bridge today, they'll see the shed wall, which is like a really high wall that has lots of like a gallery of our more recent stars like Didier Drogba, Jimmy Floyd, Hasselbank, John Terry, Frank Lampard, really nice. Uh, thing to walk along and to appreciate our history from but that was not built in 1905 that was built between 1909 and 1913 what was originally there was a really low like garden wall because we're surrounded by housing um and they over the years they increased the banking so that they could accommodate more numbers so it was ready to hold a crowd big enough for an fa cup final um, but they did get England internationals and the charity shield and things like that were held there. But um, the only bit of the original ground that is still there is a stub of a wall at the north extent uh, where the museum and the uh, uh, the um, gymnasium are. But to the side of that, right at the next to the railway, there's a kind of little slice, a chunk of wall there that was built in 1906 but not by chelsea it was built by the our neighbors the um the uh it was a hospital the western um fever hospital i think it's called and um there's a brilliant letter saying that they built that wall uh, because fans used to stream off away from the ground and walk through the hospital Mm -hmm. grounds and um Chelsea said, look, if you insist on building this wall, you do realise that, okay, our fans won't be able to walk through your grounds, but your doctors and nurses won't be able to play hockey on our football pitch anymore, which I think is a lovely little touch. Um, Anyway, I digress. (laughs) Um, That's what, so basically they had to build a a brand new stadium that was fit for purpose and not just that. It It was reckoned to be the best in the country. Immediately, everyone said it, even the like uh, the Liverpool Post and Echo would said the same thing because the first a trial match was played against uh, Liverpool, it's a magnificent stadium. Now, as far as zooming forward to Roman, uh, when he came in, he didn't really need to do anything, uh, as far as the, the ground. Uh, was concerned his big infrastructural thing was something completely different which was the training ground and um which plans were immediately started in well a year after so not instantly but that was the first thing that they recognized there was that harlington the training ground that they that he had inherited was not fit for purpose so this brilliant new uh training ground you know, he got planning permission for that and that sort of opened uh, a couple of years after he'd come in. But what he did really was he changed the, I think, changed the culture of the club quite a lot. Even in the latter days of of the Bates regime, Chelsea didn't really have much staff. It was still pretty much run along the lines of a, a village fete or something. It was very much understaffed. And it wasn't... Um, wasn't a really, it didn't have all the niceties like HR and all these sorts of things that a modern workplace needed. In fact, there was a sign at Stamford Bridge on the wall saying, "The Romans didn't get where they were by having meetings; they got there by killing everyone in their way." I mean, welcome to Chelsea. <laughs> so it wasn't a cuddly place, and it was made, brought it was brought into the twenty first century, I think, anyway, by um, Roman Abramovich. Yeah, but you mentioned Coburn. What an mm. amazing legacy that is for Roman. Now,
0: it feels inevitable that the new owners will develop Stamford Bridge because, yeah, you know, we are falling behind
1: in capacity. Well, we are. Everton, I think um, Leicester. Leicester will probably have a bigger stadium than us. So, yeah, the, the, um, you know, I mean, blimey, Bournemouth might in a few years. Who knows? So, But I know having spent time with them, that this is one of their big priorities. People have seen that they've done stuff around the stadium already. Um, you know, the new signages and lots of kind of fan-focused graphics and and things. And, and I do think that uh, they will want a successful business that's based on having numbers of people, a bit like in 1905, get the bodies in there, you know, um get box office players in there and get a proper sporting business achieving things through its uh, through not just through commercial success but the commercial success comes out of sporting success and a really coherent club that is loved by its fans so i think people are going to really really uh, appreciate when it happens i think people are going to really love it and i got to say that um um, you know, I, I think people are going to. I think it's going to. That will be one of the key things that will be a bit of a game chamber for Chelsea Football Club. We saw the
0: amazing plans Roman had for the grounds. Mm. Will the new owners use the same blueprint?
1: Mm. I don't think so. It's not my sense that that is going to be. I mean, it. You know, it's a torturous planning process. It's been approved. All the money that was going to go into the community went in there but I think the new owners as I said are more about the fan experience and I think three or four years away from Stamford Bridge as was being uh, as we were staring at for the whole stadium redevelopment I think that would be anathema to them I think it'd be unpalatable I imagine that they would like to go or prefer to go down the route of stand by stand uh, development. I don't know this. It's just, just the sense that I've picked up. What I do know is that the, some of the people working it really don't like the hotels, and they don't like the lack of a wow factor. And something I kept pointing out when we were walking round it um, that it, it's kind of the football is the football ground is sort of lost in this strange um, out of town retail architecture of the hotels and things. So I think they'll go for a traditional English four-stander, not a bowl. And I think it will be very fan-centred. It will be about what the fans want. And they have invested a record
0: amount on players this summer, way more than Roman's instant eye-popping £110 <laughs> million pounds in six weeks back in
1: 2003. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. As Chelsea fans, I'm sure you were the same. I know Chelsea supporters who when they saw all this, all these players being bought and all this money being spent, you know, well, you had Kike De Lucas was the loan signing the previous summer. Uh, and and then we're spending all this incredible amount of money. And I know Chelsea fans who sort of went out shopping and um, just bought things, like, uh, garden centres or whatever, spent money they couldn't afford because they felt rich just watching it all happen. <laughs> That's how close they felt to the club. And when you think, you know, so that spree, when you think of the crucial roles, those 2003 recruits, the first ones really, including Claude McAuley, Joe Cole, Damien Duff, Wayne Bridge, Jeremy, and Crespo, and even Marco Ambrosio, what they went on, the roles they played in our instant success, really. Um, okay, and Voron and Mutu were flops, but that's the nature of the transfer window beast, I think. It was a really good strike rate. So how are the new boys shaping up in 2022 then?
0: I'm assuming that they're all good enough to keep Kike De Lucas out the side.
1: (laughs) I think he retired last year, actually, Kike.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) i got a feeling he did. Um, And I know um, John Michelobi's just retired. I've got to raise a glass to him. What a fantastic player John Michelobi was for Chelsea Football Club. Rated by every manager he played for as well. Absolutely, and that's that's the point. That really? is the point. Just finally, we have to say because Michael Essien is watching this, he's in the studio, and you had some great years with with Michael, and, and it was sad that his career was cut short by injury. Have you got some funny stories for us? Perhaps you can tell us about.
0: He was not my player. He's my son. You know, I'm I'm his white daddy. You know, more than more than stories, feelings, is more than than a player for me.
1: And that. That um, fantastic performance in Barcelona, where he, he played like three different people <laughs> in different positions in there in 2012. Absolutely amazing. Um, well, I, th- I again, I think we've I think lots of them. When you think that, really, from a standing start, Todd and Bedad have come in and thought, right, what does this? What does this brilliant team? This team that won the Champions League in 2021 what does it need to get back to that state that position that um depth and i think i think raheem sterling is already you know, there's no jury out on him at all he's hit the ground running he's our leading scorer as we speak um and i think T- kalidou kilibali and Marco kudreya i think i love the focus, the concentration of Koulibaly. I think he'll bed in really well. He didn't play in Graham Potter's first game, but, um, you know, um, uh, I I think he really will settle in very well and he'll have a great understanding with Mendy uh, because they're national teammates. I think Kukurea has had some great moments. I think, again, we've got to find the shape of the team that will work best for him and Ben Chilwell. Dennis Zakaria, we haven't really seen, Uh, but again, uh, you know, having watched him in, I didn't, I I wasn't studying him, but I I watched him play in the past, and I've been impressed with him uh, in midfield. So I'm hoping he works out. And I think Carney Chukwemeka, one of the youngsters that I was talking about, that we've invested in, you know, he looks great in the the uh, we when the matches were called off because of the Queen's death um we staged a friendly against Brighton and uh Carney or Carnes as he's known um scored both our goals in a 2-1 win so I think it looks to me like there've been some very shrewd buyers in there and I'm hoping that um it all works out for them yeah and of course the new owners changed
0: manager almost straight away how common was that under previous ownership of previous <laughs> new
1: ownership Yeah, well, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's like, um, uh, obviously, 1905, they appointed the first one. So it's not like they got rid of him, although he only lasted until uh, November of the following season because he had a few problems, that's Jackie Robertson, the man I, I was talking about as being part of that uh, recruiting process. And um, Ken Bates kept faith in John Neal, despite that worst campaign in our history. And he was rewarded with that promotion in 1984. And, you know, John Neal is still lots of Chelsea fans, or oh, responsible for lots of Chelsea fans' favourite moments, that mid-80s promotion and, you know, following the club away, at that time was fantastic but of course notoriously um, the incumbent in 2003 Claudio Ranieri was labelled a dead man walking towards the end of Roman's first season in charge and then made way for the most successful coach we ever appointed Jose Mourinho so you can't say it's not you know this instinct of the new line in the pride killing off the young (laughs) he can't say it it doesn't work well let's hope Potter's magic
0: makes his spell a great one so there we have it the more things change at Chelsea the more they pretty much stay the same you've been listening to the famous CFC podcast with me Gary Barone and him Rick Lanville at Rick Lanville on Twitter If you've enjoyed it, please tell your friends and family, rate us unfeasibly highly, and subscribe on whichever app you're using. If you didn't, we have a lovely virtual waiting room waiting for you to post your comments. Only joking. Next time, we'll be exploring the history of pre-match music at the bridge, including our enduring love affair with Liquidator. In the meantime, play up, pensioners!